This is the Biblical Unitarian Podcast. Hello, everybody, and welcome to the Biblical Unitarian Podcast, the podcast that aims to start conversations about the oneness and unity of God and about the humanity of Jesus. My name is Dustin Smith, and as always, I will be your host. I appreciate you so much for tuning in to this week's episode, which is episode 197, entitled Reacting to the Rebuttals in the Recent Old Testament Debate. If you didn't already know, I have recently participated in an online debate on the topic of whether the Old Testament teaches Unitarianism, the doctrine that God is a single person, the Father alone. Of course, I took the affirmative position. I do think that the God presented within the Old Testament is a single person, one self, namely God the Father alone. And in these recent episodes, we've been breaking down various parts of the debate, listening to what was actually said, and getting a little bit of my insider comments and reactions to the debate. Now, in this week's episode, we are going to listen to the rebuttal section of both me and Kelly Powers. Now, it's important to note that these rebuttals were scheduled to only be five minutes long, which is not a lot of time to address everything that was brought up in a 10-minute opening statement. Now, the following episodes will focus on the next sections namely the cross-examinations, the closing arguments, and the audience Q&A. I'm going to begin this week's episode with some insider thoughts and strategies on formulating my own five-minute rebuttal. We'll turn to listen to both of the rebuttals, beginning with mine and then listening to the rebuttal of Mr. Powers. Afterwards, I'll come back in and offer some of my thoughts in regard to his rebuttal time, and note the sort of questions that I wanted to ask in the cross-examining section. Now, if you want to watch the entire video of the rebuttal section, I'm going to put a link in the notes for this week's episode, so you're welcome to check it out and watch it real time. So, in preparation for the rebuttal section, let me share with you my insider secrets and preparation strategies. If you're looking to participate in a debate, you might benefit from some of these. So I was well aware that there was going to be some difficulty in regard to responding to a 10-minute opening statement with only five minutes of rebuttal. That was the format that was handed over to me. I wasn't able to change it, and I immediately saw that, and I thought that there was going to be some difficulty on my part. However, my debate partner also shared that same difficulty, and we're going to talk about whether he has overcome that difficulty with the way that he responded. I also knew that the common proof text that are just very easy to read off actually require a pretty lengthy explanation. And so I knew that if he wanted to, he could just rapid-fire off a bunch of proof texts in his 10-minute opening statement, and I would only have five minutes to respond to them. And there's obviously some difficulty involved with that. In part of my preparation, I watched all of the videos 
on Kelly Powers' YouTube channel that dealt with the Trinity in the Old Testament. Some of them I watched twice. So I went over his YouTube and I searched for the word Trinity and I watched every single video in which he talked about that particular subject because I wanted to see the sort of verses that convinced him that the Trinity was taught in the Old Testament. I also learned that he had a podcast and I went and listened to all the podcast episodes where Kelly Powers dealt with the Trinity. Kelly Powers also had a recent debate with another biblical Unitarian. So, of course, I listened to that debate twice. And I was able to gather the sort of evidence that I thought he might use to bring towards me in his opening statement. So, having watched all those videos, listened to all those podcasts, and listened to that debate, I took a lot of notes in regard to his arguments. I felt that I had a pretty good idea having done some thorough scouting of my debate partner and the sort of arguments that he might bring to me. So when it comes to my rebuttal phase, it was one of those things that I wanted to plan out ahead of time and prepare some short 30-second long replies to each of the possible proof texts that he might bring up. And I wanted to make sure that I had this prepared before the debate started. If you can actually go and watch the debate, you'll look in the rebuttal section and you'll see that most of what I'm doing is that I'm reading off of my screen. I'm not making a lot of this up off the top of my head. I'm reading things that I had prepared, these 30-second little bullet points in regard to the various proof texts that he brought up. So I was able to study and discern what sort of proof text he might bring, prepare those ahead of time, and that way I was able to make the most of my five-minute rebuttal section. I also had quite a few prepared commentary statements ready to quote and cite in response to his proof text. You'll note in my rebuttal section that for a lot of his proof text, I'm able to cite from a particular commentary what it says about his particular proof text. Now, I also took note of all the major arguments that Kelly made in his opening statement. And I was really making sure that I addressed each and every one of them in my rebuttal period. And this is extremely important for debates because I did not want to be accused of ignoring one of his arguments or having no answer for one of his arguments. And this is a really crucial part of this particular debate, in my opinion, because of the time constraints that are involved between a 10-minute opening statement, but only having five minutes to respond to everything that is said in a 10-minute opening statement. And that required that every single second of the rebuttal phase had to be used to its fullest. So I think the rebuttal phase had to do with preparing ahead of time, not responding on the fly. Now, one thing that I did not prepare for was the various comments that Kelly Powers made about places in the Old Testament where angels spoke on behalf of Yahweh. He cited a passage in Zechariah. So at the very end of my prepared responses, I was sure to include an overarching rebuttal on this whole angel equals another Yahweh sort of argument, which is easy enough to do as I'm watching my time run out. So 
that is something that I didn't prepare for, but because that proposed theological statement is actually very easy to respond to because angels by definition are messengers. So, of course, a messenger is going to represent the sender in the fullest possible way. So without further ado, let's turn right now to listening to the rebuttal section. And after we listen to both of them, I'm going to come back and I'm going to offer my thoughts on Kelly's rebuttal that he offered towards my opening statement. So here we go. All right. Uh, Mr. Powers, I appreciate that. Um, boy, we've got five minutes to respond to 10 minutes worth of stuff. Let, let me do the best that I can, because I think there's a lot of things that need to be said there. Let's let's talk about this Echad thing. Let's talk about Echad. Well, I just want to make this point that Echad is the cardinal number one. It is not a number that means compound unity. Um, and to say that Echad is not one in number is just factually incorrect, really at the most basic level. Um, and every single Hebrew grammar has a chapter on cardinal numbers. And guess what? The first number that Hebrew student, students learn when they're counting to 10 is Echad. You know, it's Echad, Shanaim, Shalosh, Arba, Hamesh, Sheh, Sheva, Shanome, Tesha, Esher. Echad is the cardinal number one. And we know that this is what the Jews understood with Deuteronomy 6.4 because when the Septuagint translator translated it, they used Is for Echad. And Is is the Greek cardinal number that is grammatically masculine. The Lord is one person. So we can set that aside for now. Let's talk about Genesis 1.26. Many modern scholars, in fact, the vast consensus of modern scholars have abandoned the argument that this plural reference refers to the Trinity. And the Son and Spirit aren't even mentioned there, so he's having to infer it. The word biblical commentary on Genesis comments that, quote, it is now universally admitted that the Trinity was not what the plural meant to the original author. Page 27. And the following verse, Genesis 127, says that God created man using a singular verb in his own image, using the singular pronominal suffix, indicating that only one person is the creator. So the plural reference in 126, I think, is actually best explained, not as a reference to angels, but actually to the plural of majesty. Sometimes it's described as the plural of deliberation. And there are over 500 references of the plural of majesty within the Old Testament. So I got all the room in the world for that. Let's talk about Genesis 19.24, okay? That's uh, the Lord rained down fire and brimstone from the Lord in heaven, okay? The New International Commentary of the Old Testament says, quote, the twofold use of the Tetragrammaton reinforces the fact that disaster that struck Sodom and its environs was not a freak of nature. Rather, it was sent deliberately by Yahweh himself, singular pronoun. I know it sounds odd because it sounds like there's two Yahwehs in there. I don't think that's what Mr. Powers believes, that there's two Yahwehs. But 1 Kings chapter 8 and verse 1 says, listen to this, Solomon assembled the elders and leaders to King Solomon in Jerusalem. Solomon assembled the elders to King Solomon. We wouldn't conclude that there are two Solomons. The narrator in Genesis is simply emphasizing the location from which the activity is occurring, just as we see um, in 1 Kings chapter 8 and verse 1, because it's coming directly from heaven. He mentioned Isaiah 48, 12 through 16. Um, and, you know, there's a big change in the speaker there. I think all the commentaries are pointing this out now, uh, but it's not actually referring to something in the future. It says in verse 16 that now something is going to happen. Now 
uh, the Lord God has sent me and his spirit. Now means not in the future, now, using the Hebrew adverb atah. And I think the one who was sent, call perfect of Shalak, uh, is either the prophetic author or a few verses later, we actually have the speaker who is the servant of Yahweh, who is described as Israel in chapter 49, verses 1 through 3. He also mentioned Amos 4, 10 through 11. Okay, so, well, he, Amos 4, 10 through 11 uh, is combined with the Jeremiah 50 passage and the Isaiah 13 passage, but let's let's just kind of lump them all together because we have this common phrase, uh, so Yahweh did this whenever God overthrew Sodom and Gomorrah. And this particular phrase, as when God overthrew Sodom and Gomorrah, um, seems to be a stock expression in the prophets, now taken up by Amos. Um, of course, he pointed out that it was mentioned in Isaiah. It's also mentioned in Jeremiah, word for word. And the Hermeneia commentary of Amos helpfully states that the expression became paradigmatic for the completeness of destruction. Paradigmatic. Now, why would Amos use this phrase if it's just repeated in the prophets? Well, the New International Commentary of the Old Testament argues that it was added for emphasis, not to suggest that God is more than one person. Lastly, in the 21 seconds that I have, um, angels represent God because that's what angels are. They are messengers. And when God sends out a messenger, that messenger is fully invested with God's authority. And so that messenger can be referenced as the sender himself. Thank you. All right, I'll start going. Uh, I've got a lot to cover in a short time to get there. All right, uh, so as I mentioned before, uh, what was significant is there is no verse that states unequivocally that God is one person. I made that clear before. Um, what I was also stating before was, you know, in reference to Akkad, as I was mentioning, looking at my notes here, uh, the point is that when that is being used throughout, I gave, I gave a lot of scriptures on Akkad. And each of those was referenced in some form of unity. So whether or not he talks about this cardinal rule, I don't mean no disrespect to Dustin because this is not an attack on him, but that means squat when you look at the context. Because in each of those references, it talks about how the word is used and used as a unity, not in singularity, but used as a whole. And so we need to look at what the Bible teaches rather than these other sources here and there, okay? We have to be careful of that. Now, in regards to Deuteronomy 6.4, when you're talking about Jewish people, if you just did a Google search, and I'm, I'm, I'm using this for time because it's, it's a good research, but any of those who are listening, Dr. Dustin Smith, you want to have a Jewish perspective because you said that this would be a Jewish word that they would understand and what they'd be taught. Well, I would encourage anyone to go to Jews for Jesus, a great ministry online, Jews for Jesus, and go read their article on the Jewishness of the Trinity. They have to break down how that is used. They talk about the difference between Akkad and Yahid and talk about that. And again, so that's an important point that I like to bring out. So go check that out because I shared good references, my own personal research and notes, but I would encourage if you want to get more in depth, go check that out. Now, what's interesting to me is with some of the stuff that Dustin shared, and this normally comes up when you're talking to Jehovah's Witnesses, talking to oneness people, you're talking to Muslims, whoever else, that the Trinity is like a came centuries after the early church, like you know the creeds, and mostly you normally blame the Roman Catholic Church, and that's just a bunch of hogwash, okay? 
when you look at the scriptures, I normally like to say when you're looking at the Old Testament, you cannot look at the Old Testament with the lens by itself if you are a New Testament believer. You read the Old Testament through the New Testament lens through Jesus Christ. So when you look in the New Testament, it affirms the Old Testament. In fact, there are many references in the New Testament that point back to the Old Testament that show the pre-existence of Jesus Christ and him actually being called God. You read Hebrews chapter 1, there is a plethora of references there that point back to the pre-existence of Christ. If you were to read 1 John chapter 4, John the Apostle, who I'll trust over him, over anybody out there who says Jesus didn't pre-exist before his incarnation, I'll take John's word over anyone else because he says in 1 John 4, 9 through 14, that God sent the Son, the only begotten, into the world. So he was already in existence. John 1, 16 talks about John the Baptist. He existed before me. John the Apostle says in John 12, 41, a direct reference back to Isaiah 6, speaking of Jesus being the Lord that Isaiah experiences in Isaiah chapter 6. Again, that's a different kind of discussion, but I mean, look, there are a plethora of scriptures in the New Testament that point back to the Old Testament, affirming the pre-existence of Jesus Christ. The angels of the Lord you're talking to second ago, they're just angels that represent God. I'm looking forward to talking to you because I'm going to be pressing some points on Zechariah 1, 2, and 3, where that angel who is called the angel Lord is actually called Yahweh, and he has the power to forgive sins. He's talking. He's actually talking to Yahweh in heaven. There's at least two being referenced. I'm looking forward to discussing more of this Amos chapter 4 thing because whatever things you're trying to use there, again, let's let the text speak for itself. The text is clear. talks about Yahweh raining fire and brimstone from Yahweh out of heaven, 1924. And this is a newsflash, not again an insult to you, Dustin, the royal we or the majesty thing. That didn't come into existence as what we understand today to around 1200 A.D. That's 1200 years after the time of Christ you do the numbers before the time of Christ, okay, before he took on his incarnation. That's thousands of years. The royal we from Genesis 1, 26, let us make man our image, that falls flat to the ground like a sack of potatoes, okay? So it says, God said, let us make man in our image, and he made man in his own image. Again, like I said before, it shows both the singular and the plural. Both work together. They're in unity. There is the oneness of God that I affirm. But there is a total package of the Old Testament scriptures that over and over show that God has been revealed more than one in personage as some kind of unity that cannot be rejected. Thank you. All right. You've now heard both of the rebuttals, starting with mine and ending with Kelly's. And I want to offer some of my post-debate reflections on Kelly's rebuttal towards my opening statement. Now he begins by responding to my rebuttal, not actually to my opening statement. And this is very interesting, but that's what he wanted to use his five minutes doing. It's pretty clear that he misheard me talking about the cardinal number one because he said that I was talking about some sort of cardinal rule. So clearly he misheard me when I said that and I think he wasted some time with his misunderstanding. I don't think he actually knew what a cardinal number was, but whatever he thought I said, he dismissed it immediately, saying that it doesn't mean squat. 
Not just dismissing an argument doesn't actually mean that you're interacting with it, but I think if you don't understand what I'm trying to say, then you can't respond to it in a meaningful way. Now, he talked about Deuteronomy 6.4, which, of course, is a passage that I brought up, but he said by using a Google search, you can learn what Echad and Yaqid mean, which I suppose that's true, but I don't think we should be getting all of our data from Google. I think we should be getting our definition of Hebrew words from Hebrew lexicons that are written by grammarians and scholars, like the Halot or the Brown Driver and Briggs. Hebrew lexicon. Of course, that's where I got my definitions. He didn't like my definitions, so he wanted to resort to Google. The argument that I made about the Trinity coming centuries after the church was founded, he just immediately dismissed and called it hogwash, but he didn't actually interact with the evidence that I brought forward in regard to that particular point. He did make this point by saying that you cannot look at the Old Testament with a lens by itself, which is a very interesting admission because this whole debate is about whether the Old Testament teaches that God is Unitarian or not. But he says that you cannot look at the Old Testament with a lens by itself. I completely disagree. I think the Old Testament is just fine by itself. He did go on to say that you read the Old Testament through the lens of the New Testament, as in you start from the back of the book and you read from its beginning. And I don't think that's really how it works. But I wonder if he just conceded the entire debate with his argument there by saying that you can't look at the Old Testament with a lens by itself. Now, he did spent a lot of time, and in my opinion, he wasted a lot of time talking about a bunch of New Testament references. He talked about the book of Hebrews and the Gospel of John and First John, which is all fine and dandy, but that's not the nature of the debate. The nature of the debate is not about the way that God is revealed in the New Testament. So all of those examples are really irrelevant for the state of the debate, and I thought that that was a poor use of his five-minute rebuttal time on his part. Now, he did this because I made the argument that the Old Testament does not have any doctrine of the literal preexistence of Jesus, or the Son of God is not a preexistent being in the Old Testament. So he wanted to spend a lot of time doing that. He wanted to spend a lot of time trying to argue for it. But here's the point. Even if the preexistence of Jesus was true, that doesn't actually prove that God is more than one person. There are many Arians that believe in the preexistence of Jesus, but they affirm that God is one person. So, again, if that doctrine was true, which I don't think it is, it doesn't actually contribute to his part of the argument, which is to dismantle the suggestion that God is only one person. Now, he definitely responded to this royal we, as he called it, which I described it as the plural of majesty which again was something that I said in my rebuttal. It wasn't actually something I said in my opening statement. So he's not responding to my opening statement. He's responding to my rebuttal. And he said it didn't come into existence until 1200 AD. That is just absolutely false. It's absolutely false. And every single Hebrew grammar dealing with the Old Testament and the various Hebrew lexicons clearly point out 
that the plural majesty was something that was well established within the Hebrew Bible. Now, there were many of my points in my opening statement that he just didn't respond to, had no idea how to respond to, or completely ignored. And here is the point where I really want to point out that his five-minute rebuttal did not actually rebut the majority of my opening statement. So I'm going to go down point by point. He had nothing to say about God being depicted as a single person over 20,000 times. So my largest piece of evidence towards demonstrating my point, no word on it, no response. He didn't respond to the various passages that I brought up in Deuteronomy. He didn't respond to Isaiah 44, 24, and he didn't respond to Malachi chapter 2 and verse 10. I pointed out that God is described as a single person in a variety of his titles, like the Holy One and the Mighty One. No response from Kelly Powers. I pointed out that the external testimony of persons like Josephus and Philo, who were Jews, and non-Jews, like the writer of the letter of Aristius and Tacitus, affirmed the fact that the God taught in the Old Testament is a single person. No response from Kelly Powers. Now, he dismissed my claim that the Trinity is something that has developed, but he actually didn't interact with any of the evidence that provided from historians, from scholars, and even from Gregory of Nyssa, who helped write the doctrine of the Trinity at the Council of Nicaea. He wrote the Nicene Creed, who himself said that the Trinity is the middle ground between Jewish monotheism and polytheism. So Gregory of Nyssa admitted that the Nicene Creed, the doctrine of the Trinity, is not Jewish monotheism. It's not one and the same. No response from Kelly Powers. He had nothing to say about my proposition that Jesus is the son of Abraham, the son of Judah, and the son of David. Those are pretty common New Testament truths. He said that Jesus did pre-exist, but he didn't offer any evidence in the Old Testament to show that Jesus pre-existed. I also argued that sons by definition, are younger than their ancestors. No response from Kelly Powers. So when I map out all of the points of my opening statement, and then I plot in the particular points that he actually responded to in a meaningful way, he actually chose to not respond to most of my arguments. I actually do not think that he offered any real convincing argument that rebutted any of my points in the opening statement. So it was at this point, at the end of the rebuttal section, that I was feeling pretty good about the debate. I didn't really know how it was going to go, but having seen his prepared opening statement, but then seeing his rebuttal, I thought, okay, clearly he has not responded to my opening statement. I think things are going to go pretty well from here on out. So, appreciate you so much for listening to this week's episode. Please join us next week as we listen to the first round of cross-examinations from each participant. I start off by asking questions for 10 minutes, and then Kelly Powers gets to respond by asking questions to me for 10 minutes. I'll also include in next week's episode my reactions 
to the answers that Kelly gave to my questions when I cross-examined him. So please look forward to our next episode. If you enjoy this podcast, please consider supporting us as we promote the important truths about the oneness and unity of God and the humanity of Jesus. If you'd like to offer a tip or donation, you may check out the episode's description for a link to PayPal. The Biblical Unitarian Podcast is produced and edited by Dustin Williams. My name is Dustin Smith, your host. Until next time, you folks, please take care.